In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Betches Media presents... I like beer. I don't know if you do. Okay. Do you like beer, Senator? Or not. Uh, my party is going bat crazy. Yeah! You're the pop- Alternative facts. Oh, goodness. The Betches Sup Podcast. America! Hello, and welcome to the Betches Sup Podcast. I'm Sammy Fishbein. I'm Caitlin Bird. And the Betches Sup Podcast is your daily rundown of all the craziest shit happening in the news brought to you by your two funniest friends. Which is us. Caitlin, I am so happy to be back with you. We haven't recorded in a while. We haven't. I think we haven't recorded together since we were in person. Like, I know. Since, yeah. It's crazy. It's, it's been, been a moment. <laughs> it's been a minute, but we have a lot to talk about today. Although it was fun to uh, do the um, live show with you the other night. Live show was so much fun. Everything was great. Um, and and Rand Paul was the most asshole, so that was perfect. You your selection was flawless. Thank you. I mean, I've I've never won that game before, so <laughs> I usually lose. Um, but you know, Rand Paul, pretty pretty decent at pretty good pick for the asshole. It's, it's hard true. to compete. It's hard to compete with that assholishness. Um, so today we're going to talk about this very scandalous book that's coming out about, um, written by Donald Trump's niece, Mary Trump, and the legal battle that has led to, that has, uh, precipitated its release. And then we are going to talk about cancel culture. Oh, joy. Yeah. <laughs> Should be great. <laughs> it's, it's going to be awesome. I nothing works better than literally Mary Trump trying to cancel her uncle, then followed up by us discussing why some people are like against the process of cancellation. It's perfect. Well, I loved your thread last night, so we'll hopefully get into that um, in that discussion. Okay, so before we we get to cancel culture, um, an update on this book. Trump's niece, Mary L. Trump, is coming out with a tell-all book next Tuesday, and a few outlets have received advanced copies. So we have a little bit of insight into what is going on there. The book is titled, Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. Um, So that seems like a pretty enticing title. Yeah, very intriguing. You're kind of like, oh, okay. And it's it's kind of like, uh, you know, it's coming from inside the house. Yes. Like this is instead of us being like, oh, this is just somebody who wants to do a hit job. It's like literally somebody who's like, actually, I I know him pretty well, and I also think he is terrible. <laughs> right. Like, ooh, confirmation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they could. I mean, she she says she puts the subtitle as how my family created the world's most dangerous man. But overall, I feel like it's kind of just a portrait of a really dysfunctional family. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I always think about this whenever we talk about like monarchies or like or like you know aristocracy. Like those people are actually really messed up, y'all. Like that's not a great idea. You know, this is a yeah. portrait of literally an aristocratic family that just has literally all the terrible shit going on inside of it. it right, like- and like not in the good way, in the like potential for inbreeding type of way. 
I mean, we're not going to discuss specifically what was going on with all of those photo shoots happening between Ivanka and her dad for years, but whatever. That's the thing. They were deeply messed up family. Right. It's like you want to be an aristocrat, you can be an aristocrat. Oh, yeah. Full-blown. Full-blown. Aristocrats. It's it's literally the joke. Yeah, they are. (laughs) Wow, that actually, like, played out well okay so i mean you could they could even you could just even like read the mary trump book and then at the end be like and it's called the aristocrats <laughs> that's the modern day version of the joke Ooh. Yeah. so here's so here's the portrait of what this book is about mary trump is donald trump's niece so her brother her dad is trump's brother a man named fred trump jr who is the eldest of the trump children out of four of them donald's yeah Donald. So Donald's his brother. Um, Fred Trump Jr. died in his early 40s as a result of an alcohol-related illness. He died of a heart attack at age 42. So if you know how Donald doesn't drink, he will accredit accredit that to the fact that his brother um, had alcoholism and passed away from it. Um, Not that that has stopped Donald from doing other substances, but at least that is why he claims to steer clear of alcohol. Um, despite the fact that their father had passed, Mary Trump and her brother, who's named Fred Trump III, pretty easy to keep track of these, you know, you just one, two, three, um, she, they had stayed in touch with the Trump family at large after their brother passed away. And they had planned that there, they had anticipated that there would still be an inheritance after the elder Fred Trump, aka their grandfather had passed away, even though their father had passed, had, uh, died before his, his own father did. Um, but after, after Fred Trump senior died, uh, Donald's dad in 1991, she and her brother, so Mary and Fred the third found out that they were actually cut out of the will while all the other grandchildren were still set to inherit the fortune through their own parents, Mary and her brother were cut out allegedly or supposedly because their father had died. So the center of the book, um, kind of talks about a court battle that are over the will, along with generally horrifying descriptions of the Trump family dynamics and, and motivations. The central story and probably one of the most disgusting things I've ever heard was that after Mary and her brother went to court, the Trump family cut off health uh, care to um, Fred Trump III's son, who was born with cerebral palsy. Um, and he acknowledged that they had done that. And he said, when Fred III sued us, we said, why should we give him medical coverage, was what he said at the time. Um, they also, Donald and his siblings also complained that Mary and Fred didn't dress up enough for family events. Um, and they never visited the son, William Trump, who at nine months suffered from seizures. And that is, that's the aristocrats. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, you can kind of see how in the way he treats his family, you get the, the perspective on like, why he's so callous about like everything happening right now right like if you wanted a an explanation i guess people i guess one of like the things that bothers me the most about one of the things that bothers me the most about um the, the discourse around trump is how often people are like surprise like oh my god i can't believe he wouldn't care like guys we have seen over and over again this man is completely heartless You know, he's completely, he has absolutely no shred of empathy for anyone outside of his immediate circle. And even that feels very conditional. I think there are like stories about, I think there was like this anecdote about how he didn't even notice his son's Eric 
his son Eric's wife, Lara. Like, he didn't even know that she existed. They've been married for eight years. Like, like he was like, wow. oh, he didn't, I didn't even know she existed, but she did a great speech for me. And, like, literally, he only recognizes people when they do things for him. Like, that's his entire universe. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't, I don't even think he really gives a shit about his own kids, except for Ivanka, which is, like, tied up in some, like, weird sexual shit, as well as, like, I don't know, how hard is it for a narcissist to, like, like their own family? They are literally a copy of you partly so it's sort of like the fact that he they they have enough money the trumps obviously the fact that he would and it and some of it was like even his dad's it wasn't even like he had to pay for the insurance the fact that he could like cut off healthcare to his own family members is is so heinous that you're like oh of course he doesn't give a fuck about anyone at the border or coronavirus or who's or anyone because he can't even care about his own nephew yeah yeah i mean like it when you think about it like it, the the it's so easy to care about your family that's the unit that that like most of us travel through the world with chosen family or are born into families that fortunately like are there to support us like that's that's the point like you're not going to make it very far without having a support system and and people who care about you and like that that set of resources is like the thing that gets you to where you're supposed to go, and like he couldn't even muster that. And as as you said, it's like what's crazy is like it wasn't even his resources, which again feels very much like why was this person put in charge of the federal government dispersing resources when he literally cannot comprehend the idea of spending resources on anything other than himself or acquiring it for his own desires, which yeah yeah is just. It's kind of like, okay, we get like this, this inner portrait of this guy that we, that explains so much of the behavior, but at the same time, I don't know if I needed an explanation. Like, it's beautiful. It's lurid. I'm glad to like, that is kind of humiliating. You know, someone, he paid someone to take his SATs, but he was out there saying that Barack Obama wasn't smart enough to get into Harvard. Right. <laughs> but someone who benefited from affirmative action. And I, I went to school with a lot of people who spent time telling me that it was going to be easier for me to get into school while their parents literally donated squash courts. Yeah. Right. So yeah. affirmative action is for rich people too. It's just called oh, it's, philanthropy. It, it doesn't have a name. But it's, yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's just like, that's just how life works, right? You, it's, it's called, no, it's called like an addition, a, a legacy contribution, an alumni contribution. That, that's what that's what rich oh affirmative action. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, I mean it's it's so interesting what you say about, you know, the family that the family is supposed to be the unit or whether it's a chosen family or a biological family that we kind of make our way through life with. And when that family itself is broken or has individuals in it who are severely broken, you can see how someone can come out of that and then have and then give him the right resources and the right position. You know, the Russians get you elected to, the pre to be president of the United States. You never know where you could end up. And that dysfunctional family and the way that you were treated and that you then were taught to treat people becomes the way that we are now dealing with international relations, yeah. <laughs> which is pretty yeah. crazy. Um, but yeah, so Mary, so Mary Trump, what's interesting about her is that she seems to be very different from her family. She has a PhD in, in, 
in clinical psychology. And she essentially blames uh, her grandfather, aka Donald's dad, Fred Trump Sr., who, and she claims that he was a sociopath whose cruelty manifested in dysfunctional children, which I think we're all witnessing. Um, she concludes that her father's behavior led the president to adopt bullying and other aggressive behaviors to mask his own insecurities and that he's incapable of experiencing a full range of emotions. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's a clinical psychologist. I'm not going to argue with her. <laughs> it feels very evident. I have eyes and ears. I'm not going to argue. <laughs> well, I'm capable of processing information in the world, and uh, I think I agree. I think, right. Yeah. He's like yeah. so, right. so not borderline. Um, but she's, she also says he has twisted behaviors, yeah, and sees cheating as a way of life. Like you mentioned, he cheated on his SATs. He paid someone to take them. Um, and he describes how the entire family would gang up on her father, Fred Jr., mocking his aspirations to be a pilot because they were all in real estate and a pilot was, I don't know, I guess beneath them as a family, like an actual skill. Why would one want that instead of just finding ways to uh, use your money to cheat in order to make more money? Um, yeah. So this book is coming out. It's going to be very revealing um, obviously the White House is saying that it's false and motivated by, by financial gain, but I, I, I mean, the, the problem with the White House is that like they never had credibility and kind of angered me at the very beginning when people were like, are they, what, what do they think? Like, what are they doing? It's like, whatever it is, it's all a lie in order to get whatever they want, which is the exact behavior that you described in the book. Like, everything <laughs> is a, an, a means to justify the ends. Like, it's all, it, you, whatever that end is, which is making Donald Trump happy, anything that gets him there is a qualified thing. And everyone is designed inside that White House to do exactly that thing. So if it makes Donald Trump happy to see Kaylee McEnany yell at uh, black reporters, that's what's going to happen. And if it makes them happy to pretend that this book is not an accurate portrait of his behavior, which, by the way, it, it's already confirmed. We already are living in the world of this sociopath. We're just like, oh, look, this is what his family life is like. It's about as bad as we expected. About, about as terrible as we could have imagined, probably. Right. And I mean, I think we have to blame, and this I think will lead us nicely into our next discussion um, about cancel culture. I think that we have to sort of blame this, this normalcy bias in the media that like they, I get it, you know, as much as Donald Trump wants to uh, vilify the, the left wing media and how most media figures, I think, do lean left as opposed to right. It doesn't mean that they are actually calling it like it is. There's this extreme bias towards normalcy, towards almost like a f putting what you're seeing with your eyes and ears into some sort of, through some sort of filter so that it makes it feel more legitimate or strategic or thoughtful and not actually just batshit, psychopathic, insane behavior. And it's very, I, I, the, the least of the the least of the emotions I feel is frustration that I feel like I'm constantly being gaslit because I'm seeing this as fucking insane. And they're like, Oh, the president has, has uh, taken a sip of water with two hands this morning. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that like so much, like I think about like the, the bounty story and like, every individual thing that is going on that is completely wild right now should be 
like would in any other universe be considered like the biggest scandal that's ever happened in American history. We just keep having new ones every day. Every day is a new like mind breaking scandal. (laughs) Yeah. President of the United States knew that a foreign adversary was paying people to murder Americans and did nothing. Did, uh, did not only did nothing, allowed it to continue, did not challenge or argue with the people who are paying out the bounties, instead argued with the people who brought him the information and said that it wasn't good enough, which was crazy because evidence of paying people to murder people is actually one of the like easiest things to cooperate. See? Really, really easy. But, you know, he's also the guy who said that there was no evidence that Russia interfered in the election on his behalf. So. I mean, he also once changed the me- the path of a hurricane with a Sharpie. Yeah, he did so, do that, too. And I mean, and, and that's what I mean about, like, the normalcy bias. Like, he did that two years into his administration. Yeah. And yet people are like, no one was like, the president is trying to, like, literally alter a weather map with a pen. Right. It just, it never becomes fact. Like we keep getting, we keep having these new levels of outrage, but we never interrogate what it means to have somebody in the office who's doing these things and what it tells us about ourselves, which is really the reflection on the American society, right? Like no one wants to actually take this out of, of like normalcy context because then they'd have to actually start interrogating the actual things that we have allowed to happen in order to allow this man to maintain power and who feels empowered by Donald Trump. And really wrestle with the fact that a part of our society is apparently a death cult, doesn't care about anything other than suppressing and uh, uh, oppressing other people. And that, that would be really horrifying to accept. But like, you, once you accept it, you have to start dealing with it. And I think absolutely 0% of people actually want to start thinking about how do our existing rules create Donald Trump? Because obviously he took exploited things that we already have. And, yeah, if you don't interrogate it, then you never have to ask, which, you know, is very much cancel culture. Like, I have the right to hold an idea. Let's not interrogate what that idea actually is. Let's just talk about how I should not be held responsible for anything that I think about it. Just like I shouldn't be held responsible for, you know, normalizing Donald Trump. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Because now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone for any occasion. And it's easy. You just tap or click Gift Mode in your Etsy app or Etsy.com and then answer a few questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated gift idea list based on hundreds of personas. Now it is simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of my favorite things to do are go to Etsy gift mode and then search absurd things like what kind of gifts do you have with Walter Cronkite on them? What kind of gifts do you have for dachshund owners? There's jewelry, ceramic, toys, board games, all kinds of fun stuff. A gifting moment is always right around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. 
Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. They also have inclusive sizing, up to 5X, as well as petite and maternity. You get fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com, newly with two U's with code FeverDream20. Newly subscription clothing rental, change your clothes. Do you want to talk about this um, this letter that just came out, which is kind of precipitating this? Yeah. So background on the letter is published in Harper's Magazine. Um, it's, it includes like a lot of prominent people. My, I, I've been hanging out with a bunch of friends and we've been trying to figure out like how this happened because my, my friend group includes some people who are journalists and everything and they're like, where did this list come from? So apparently it looked like it was a letter that had been started. They started with a certain perception, went to find certain people to get them on board and then started like telling other, like shipping it out to other people see if they could get them on board. And not everybody knew who else was on the list. So, so the, that was... Yeah. Yeah, which makes a huge difference because there's some people who looked at it and were like, oh, this is... And the thing about the actual letters is it's like extremely vague. So there's yes. um, some 150 writers, academics, activists, historians, including uh, the likes of J.K. Rowling, Salman Rushdie, and Margaret Atwood have signed on an open letter denouncing what they call restriction of debate. But, you know, it can be shorthanded into cancer culture because other people like Barry Weiss is on there. David Brooks is on there. Um, you got a lot of people who are sad that James Bennett was, was you know, taken out of the editor, opinion editor uh, at the New York Times, uh, taken out as that because he platformed basically a fascist argument to murder American citizens because they were protesting for uh, civil rights. Um, and people were like, that's bad. And then all of a sudden James Bennett was like, oh, I, I didn't even check what he wrote before I published it. And we were all like, this is literally your job as an editor. And so then he lost his job. And now apparently people are very upset that he got canceled, which I don't know, maybe you should just do your job, read right. things. Before he admitted he didn't people. read the letter is like he wild. Peace. <laughs> I mean, so it's so interesting that you that you say that not everyone who was on it knew who else was on it because I found it sort of like because obviously, like, first of all, I read the letter and I was like, this yes. doesn't say anything. I don't even know what you're talking about. It's very, very nonspecific. It's incredibly like it's it's a word salad. It's literally a yeah. word salad. And I mean, I understand I understand people's a beef with with cancel culture and i think there are arguments that one can make and then you know you can have a discourse about it but i found that this letter was like one of the weakest indictments of cancel culture 
I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, and I was surprised to have seen like that such there, that there were such a, a, a range of people from like Margaret At- Atwood to Matthew Iglesias to David Brooks. Like, yeah, it didn't. Yeah. Gloria Steinem. Gloria Steinem is on there. Noam Chomsky is on there. I mean, yeah. you've got David Blight, Nell uh, Irvin Painter. Um, I mean, you've got some people in there who really have done a lot of great work on interrogating society and like inequalities in society. Um, you know, you, there was a, there, there's a trans woman on there. So you, initially your instinct is to be like, oh, okay, so this is just a big w- wide range of people who all feel the same way. But then you read the actual letter and it's like people who could be cast out from the stuff that they do. And you're like, what incidents are we talking about here? Because if we're talking about specific incidents, and we can talk about the merits of those specific incidents. But when you make it this vague, we're now no longer really having a conversation about the same thing, which makes it super easy for somebody who believes in academic freedom and freedom of speech and, and freedom of discourse to pop in and be like, hey, like, yeah, I can agree with this. But it's like, okay, you're getting way too vague. And like, it seems very obvious that the big sign-ons were all like TERFs. Like the, the <laughs> first signatories were very obviously like J.K. Rowling, Jesse Single. Like the, this should not have been happening because these people, Barry Weiss, um, a lot of people who are extremely transphobic and have been publicly transphobic and have gotten public backlash for being transphobic. And I think about the most vulnerable segments of our society, people who obviously don't get platforms, like being a billionaire author to talk about why they have the right to exist. (laughs) Um, And I think that's like really kind of, it became obvious for me that, that it wasn't about having a nuanced discussion about how we set the parameters of debate in a society that has now shifted to allow everybody into the debate. You know, it used to be there were gatekeepers, and now there's no gatekeepers at all. And I think we should definitely be having a discussion about that and who gets to stay in and gets to stay out and who gets to make those calls. But right. this was not a discussion about that. This was a bunch of turfs. Right. Trans-exclusionary <laughs> radical feminists, and although the F part... I think is should be shortened to fuckers and not feminist because <laughs> not really in my speech. I don't think that that's very feminist. That's just me. Right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just sort of like, okay, what you're saying about the gatekeepers and deciding, you know, there are no gate- gatekeepers now. I think that what people are so mad about with this, oh, we have to cancel cancel culture is because you hear who's mad about who's, who, whose mouth that comes out of. Those are the former gatekeepers. You are now a like upset about not having the same level of authority, like automatically that they used to have. And B is that like, they're upset that they might have to be held accountable for things that they have done or said. And that might mean losing money, losing a position, losing some sort of privilege or, or achievement that they've earned. But it doesn't mean that they're like going to jail. It doesn't mean that they are being executed. It means that they lost a sponsorship or, or something and you can work your way back. It doesn't mean like you're not dead. You're like, it just means that you have to apologize. You're, you're fallible and that's fine. Like the, the, the question is, what do you do next? Exactly. I think there's a certain amount of, there's just a desire not to take responsibility for their intellectual work, which really deeply bothers me because 
Like if your job is, if you consider yourself, if you've made money, if you've come to a space where you're, you've made money from speaking to the world, from interpreting ideas, from processing how we do things and creating space for people to do that for themselves, that is incredible and very important work. It's essential work, but you have to be responsible for what you do. And I, I wrote um, my thread last night and I thought about like, I have like a following of like 31,000 people on Twitter now which is like crazy because I started out with like 400 people back in January. It was crazy. And I was like January 2017. And I, as I got bigger, I really had to consider as like, I had not been thinking about anything I've been saying. I've just been like, whatever, I'm on the Twitter machine. There are like a hundred people following me, whatever. And then I was like, wait, now my voice is hitting a lot more people. So I have to take responsibility for how I think about things and what I tweet out. I I think about what I, I put into the world. Now, sometimes it has a lot of curses in it because that's where I'm at. But <laughs> for the most part, I really do try to respect other people's boundaries. I try to listen. I try to process. And I try to ask, is my voice necessary on this subject right now? And in just doing that basic work is what you're supposed to be doing when you're processing ideas. That's, that is the, that's the beginning, middle, and, and end of that discussion because – if you're not going to contribute something, like what's the point of having the discussion if you're not actually contributing something meaningful? And it's okay for you to get rebuked because ultimately that's your job is to actually sit and process things and like decide, hey, did I learn something? And not assume that you don't need to learn anymore. Like you're done. I've reached this place. I don't need to do any more work. You're supposed to listen to me. Right. It feels very hostile. When you were saying how you feel, you felt like in the beginning when you first got on Twitter that you could just say whatever, but then as you got more responsibility you, or you felt a greater sense of responsibility as more people followed you. I think the difference is that because you didn't start with an assumed position of my voice matters, people are listening to me, you had time to grow that sense of responsibility. But if someone comes into a position and everyone always had to listen to them, you might not have had that moment where you're like, you understand the weight of what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there, like, when we talk about cancel culture, I think that people need to, like, understand that, like, it's, it's a process, right? Like, nothing, there's no, like, immediate, like, oh, person canceled, like, never coming back. Because very often when you're involved in this, it's a push and pull. Like, our society is moving forward. Our discourse is moving. It's changing. It's rolling. I remember um, people saying, like, okay, Hamilton back in 2016 versus Hamilton now, because Hamilton has been released on streaming, um, which is the first time I got to see it. I, I had not gotten a chance to see it in, in theater, so I hadn't heard it or experienced it. And, of course, like, I loved it, but, of course, the context of it is so different now because our society has moved on. And what's interesting is that instead of leaning out of that conversation and Lin-Manuel Miranda being like, I'm too good for this entire conversation. Like, I made this thing. It won all the awards. You should just be grateful that I did this thing for you. He's like, yeah. They, like, this, like, we're, we were thinking about different things. Like, I think about it differently. Like, maybe we'll update things. Like, he's, he's doing that processing. And so, like, he didn't get canceled. Like, Hamilton right. didn't get canceled. Like, we just, like, started contextualizing it differently. And I, I think it's right. going to continue to survive because people are still doing that work. That you haven't given up and been like, 
you should just be like lucky. I'm just, just lucky to hear me from me. Like you're so lucky. Do you know how important I am? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think I think another piece of this is that our our country is we idolize people or we have to beat them down. It's like you can't just have like like Hamilton. It was it was great, but nothing is perfect. Nothing is like done. There's no end of history. Hopefully, I don't know climate change, but it's like. <laughs> But it's not like just like art is made at a particular time. Statements that people make, opinions that they have are only for a particular moment in time. To assume that everything that everyone says all the time is either worthy of like idolatry or of like complete cancellation, shun them, bring in the guillotine. Like that is just a very immature way to think. And I think that sort of like the way that Americans have started to think about like cultural discourse is like stand culture or destruction. Yes. It's, it's all stand culture. I yes. think, you know, so like, just like stands will like go super hard for their stand, but then they'll go like, if anyone challenges them, they'll be like, destroy that person. Obliterate yeah. them. Like, I'm like, okay, well I think we have their middle grounds here. Like I can just like, like something and then like support it, but then also tactically stop supporting it. Like, Maybe stop retweeting someone who I realize had a problematic opinion. But that doesn't mean I've canceled them. It just means like maybe I need them to do a little bit more work before I trust them to share opinions again. And I've had people who I put on mute and took off mute and, and people who I unfollowed and then refollowed later. There'd be people do that to me. I sometimes people on my followers and I'm like, I thought you already followed me? Oh, you must have unfollowed me at some point because I said something. And that's okay. Like we're it's all an evolution. You know, right. like, but I think one of the things is like, people need to understand that you, you have no entitlement to a space. You have no entitlement to a platform. There's nothing. I, and, and very many marginalized voices have not been able to get to the place where they can get canceled. We get canceled preemptively. We got canceled before we ever showed up. I have a lot of people who were like, oh, you know, this is a little bit radical for us. Like, I don't think we can publish this. And it was about like racial justice. And, like, now people are like, oh, Kaylin, can you talk about this? And I'm like, well, it's really funny because, like, two years ago you told me that it was too radical to discuss the fact that my life as a black American is not treated as valuably, with the same value that white Americans are. You said that was too radical for me to put into words, but now you want me here because we're in a moment. So, you know, that's been happening to a lot of, a lot of marginalized people, and I think that that, that is a fundamental issue is, like, you need to be responsible for your words, but you also need to be responsible for who's getting the space to talk. And if you've been given that space, if you're not doing that work, you're going to lose that opportunity. And maybe you should. Right. It's also like the, the punishment for white people is that you are kind of socially ostracized, will maybe lose money for a period of time, indeterminate, because it's kind of is based on your behavior, what you did, all these things. And I think people are forgiving, are more forgiving than uh, one would assume, that cancel culture would assume. But there's also the flip side that if a person of color is canceled, that looks very different. Like, it looks like murder. It looks like never being, like a life in jail or never, never being able to get a job, being denied the right to vote because you have a felony. There's so much more to lose than like, a sponsorship and allow and and this I think what we're experiencing is the tension of 
acknowledging that for real and allowing new voices into the space who want to somewhat crowd out or point out the fallacies of what the former gatekeepers were saying. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, I, I think like that just sums up the entire discussion because, you know, like, if the ability to speak out, like we all have free speech, right? And I think that there's a sense of like, oh, we're narrowing the discourse. We're, our discourse is more open than it's ever been. We have have more people from more backgrounds, from more understandings, from more perspectives than have ever existed in human history. And that is magical. But some people don't want to hear that, like, maybe their voices aren't as important as they should be. Right. Or that they might just have to change their opinion a little bit or learn yeah. more. Work on work and- yourself. Yeah, we all have work to do. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, I feel like this is a good place to end our discussion. And as always, I love talking cancel culture with you and people should read your threads because they are just wonderful. (laughs) You're like, thank you. I love talking with you. (laughs) You're like, my voice belongs in the space. I'm sure of it. (laughs) No, it does. It does. You You kind of always have to do the construction, right? Like, yeah, everybody's got, got their path. It's yes. so fun having a space here, though, to talk with you. Same. Same for me. I'm glad we got to do this together again. I think we'll probably maybe be back next week. Amanda's in the middle of building a new rotation that is, I think, two weeks of a rotation so we can all go rather than just... I'm very excited by this. This is, yes. this is very exciting. Yes, <laughs> me too. All right. Shall we close out? Until the return of democracy. I'm Sammy Fishbein. I'm Caitlin Bird. And this has been the Betches Up Podcast. The Betches Sup Podcast is produced by Sean Kilby and Amanda Duberman. Our podcast managers are Mike Coscarelli and Sean Kilby. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Artwork by Brittany Levine. Be sure to follow us at Betches underscore Sup on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send your emails to sup at Betches.com. Betches.